Over the past few years, I have asked you guys to give me a rating and review. And if you've done that, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It's so helpful. But if you haven't, I get it. I kind of get it. Like, I'm asking you to go and click on this thing and then like, how do I do it? And then I have to come up with some kind of a review and I don't know what to say and I'll do it later, right? I, I get it. I've, I've kind of been there before. I, I know exactly how you feel. And so I'm not asking you to do that now, okay? What I'm asking you to do now is so easy. Anybody can do it and it literally takes like one second. Go into whatever you're listening to, whether it's Apple Podcast or Spotify or whatever platform you're listening on, they all have it, and just click on the subscribe button. Just subscribe. It takes one second. You don't have to be creative. You don't have to come up with a review and write it all out and you know be self-conscious about it. Just hit that subscribe button. That would be so, so, so impactful for me. And if you're enjoying this and getting a lot out of it, that would mean the world to me. It really would. And it's so easy. Anyone can do it. Like, let's literally stop listening right now. Stop listening. Go and do it. That's how much it means to me. Nobody ever asks you to leave their show and stop listening for anything. But I'm asking you to stop listening right now. Go and just quickly subscribe. Come right back and take a listen. That would mean the world to me. I would really appreciate it. You guys are awesome. And I really appreciate it. Thanks. This is pretty common. I, I went through this too. I had analysis paralysis. A lot of people go through it. It's fear, right? We call it analysis paralysis, and it sounds maybe a little bit less, you know, of a bummer to call it analysis paralysis because analysis is a good thing. Paralysis is not, but at least we're paralyzed by doing analysis, right? Analysis sounds very responsible. What this is, is you're paralyzed by fear. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right, thank you for joining me on the show today. I appreciate you being here. I've got a great Q&A replay for you. Remember, these Q&As are done live on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. You can log into Facebook at Just Start Real Estate on Facebook, or you can go to my YouTube channel. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn. All these places where you can participate in the live Q&A every single week, ask questions. We can go back and forth. I can ask follow-up questions. We can really really dig in. Or if you're just listening to them on replay, and that's what you can do because you're not available on Wednesday nights, I totally get it. This is the place to come and listen to the replay. We have a really good one this week. We talked about wholesaling during a recession and how you adjust things in order to deal with that. Uh, buying out-of-state short-term rentals. Selling your portfolio. When When is it time? What's enough money to make on a portfolio to make you want to sell it? And then also, we, we kind of rounded it out with managing millennials. Like, what the heck do we do with millennials? I'm being a little facetious, right? We don't do anything with them. They're fine. But what what's the difference in managing different age groups and different generations? Like, wh what do you have to do? Because what works with Gen X doesn't work with millennials. What works with millennials may not work with Gen Y. So knowing how to kind of handle that and navigate that and, and really whose fault it is. If it's not working, if you have a group of people that are a different age group and they're not seeming to get it, what do you do? Whose fault is it? right? So my answer may surprise you. So check this out. Uh, we have some, some good stuff in this episode, and I will give you, without any more discussion or further delay, my latest Q&A. 
Okay, thank you for joining me here on our live Q&A that I do every single week, answering your real estate questions and trying to get to the bottom of your challenges and just work through them and try to get you past that so you can move on to the next thing. I know sometimes when we kind of encounter a challenge in our business, it's easy to get kind of stuck and stop and and like, well, I got to figure this out and I'll figure it out and then I'll keep you know making offers and I'll keep doing stuff moving forward but that doesn't help you move forward. That doesn't help you get anywhere. You can't stop. You have to keep moving forward one foot in front of the other in this business and in life, really, if you wanna get any progress. So I do this on Wednesdays. You guys can log on live, ask me anything you want about real estate. You can ask me anything you want, period, but we're kind of focusing on real estate business and growth and scaling that up and getting through those challenges. So you can log on here, ask me anything you want and we'll talk through it. You can ask follow-up questions. You can do all of that if you are here live. If you're listening to this on replay, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn or YouTube or wherever you're watching this on replay, maybe you're listening to it on my podcast, that's great too because you can get answers to questions you might not even have thought of, right? Things that, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So you don't know what you don't know sometimes. So when people ask questions, it can be really, really helpful because they're asking questions that you haven't encountered yet. But when you get there, you'll know, oh, I remember they asked this question on the Q&A and this was the answer and I can just move forward with it and you don't have to slow down and stop. So the idea here is momentum. Keep it going forward and keep you pushing and growing and getting better and better in your business. So that's what we're here to do. To that end, guys, I have created for you because one of the biggest questions I get on this Q&A, I get it over and over again, I've answered it quite a few times, is I'm having trouble getting leads, I've tried direct mail, it's not working for me, or what do you do with direct mail? And I've spent a lot of time and a lot of money on direct mail. And I've had a ton of success. And so I've learned a lot over that period of time, spending over a million dollars on postcards specifically. And I put together a, a mini video course that shows you exactly step by step what I do for my direct mail, what my card looks like, why I use that card, why it works, what aspects of it are, are the most effective, like why did I assemble the card this way? And then how do I go about getting it printed, getting it shipped? How much should you pay? What happens when you get it sent out? People start calling you. How do you handle that? Like all of my direct mail process I've put into this mini course that is very powerful and will answer, I think, all of your questions on direct mail. It should. I even show you how I pull my lists, like where I pull them from, what's my criteria, what kind of list do I pull, how do I find motivated sellers, all of that stuff. It's all in there and you can find it if you go to mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. That's mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct direct mail. <clears throat> it's on the screen right now. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you're watching. So you can just take that down or write it down or whatever. But it's mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail. Go there. I have spent a lot of time and a lot of energy making that very comprehensive so that it answers all of your questions and you can run a successful direct mail marketing campaign after watching that and get the same results or similar results that I got. Okay, let's dive into the questions for today and see what we got. Remember, you can, if you're not here live, you can DM me, you can email me at mike at juststartrealestate.com. If you wanna ask questions that get onto this Q&A, if you can't show up live, but you, you have questions for me, you can send them to me, email, you can DM me on Instagram, Facebook, whatever you wanna do, and we'll get them into this live Q&A. <clears throat> okay, first question. 
if or when a recession hits, will wholesaling get easier or harder? How do you change your process um, in this economic situation? Okay, wholesaling will uh, not get easier or harder. And that may be a controversial answer. Maybe people disagree with me, but I'm right. It will not get easier or harder. Now, <clears throat> as a whole, it won't get easier or harder. Aspects of wholesaling will get easier or harder, right? There's always the market. I say this all the time, and you really, you, you, please take this to heart. Please listen to me. The market is never good or bad, okay? The market is what it is. It, it doesn't have feelings. It doesn't have emotions. The market isn't trying to hurt you. The market isn't spiteful. <clears throat> it just is what it is. And sometimes it's a seller's market just to kind of, there's a lot, it's more complex, right? But in general, real estate, we talk about sellers and buyers markets. And then, so there's seller's market and a buyer's market. And then there's transitions between each of those. So right now we're in a seller's market. They say, people say, experts say, um, some of my colleagues and people that I know say that we are transitioning right now. We're not just in a pure top of the seller's market. We're actually transitioning and we're heading toward what they think is going to be a buyer's market. They may or may not be right. But in either case, we know that it's more we're closer to a seller's market than a buyer's market for sure. Okay. So we're we're basically in a seller's market right now, which makes for wholesaling specifically, and a lot of other kinds of real estate, it's harder to buy houses overall in general. It's a little harder to buy houses right now. So buying as for a wholesaler to to kind of a, you know address this question directly, buying houses is harder in a seller's market because house prices are high. Sellers have a lot of confidence about what their house is worth, and they are trying to maximize that, and they know that houses are selling for a lot right now. And so it's harder to get them at the kind of discounts that we like to get them at as investors in a seller's market because everyone is trying to get a ton of money. And sometimes, a lot of times when you're in a seller's market, sellers have an overinflated um idea of what their house is worth in other words they think it's worth more than it actually is even though it's worth a lot more than it was three or four years ago they think it's worth even more than it actually is right so everyone sort of got big dollar signs in their eyes when it comes to their houses so it makes it a little harder to buy houses uh however it's a lot easier to sell houses in the market that we're in right now because we get that house under contract with a seller, you know, we were able to find that at a discount, let's say. When we go to our buyer pool and we send this out to our buyers in an email or however you do it, our buyers are dying for deals because they're struggling to find deals because it's just a little bit tougher and wholesalers and the MLS and everybody doesn't have as many good deals available to them. So we have a, this rabid, um, super eager, desperate almost buyer pool they want to buy houses. And so once we get something under contract, it's really, really easy to sell houses. And we're selling them for a lot more than we could have three or four years ago because prices are up, right? So everyone sort of has to, that, that high price point kind of gets pushed along. So it's easy to sell houses as an investor to my buyers as a wholesaler. It's harder to buy them from the homeowners because house prices, right? But when things switch and what you called it is uh, when the recession hits, okay? 
<clears throat> when the recession hits, if it affects house prices significantly and house prices go down, which it could, I don't think we're going to crash like we did in 08. I really don't. Uh, and I've talked to a lot of experts who also do not think it's going to crash like 08. I don't, I don't think it will. I don't see why it would. But when the house prices inevitably do go down a bit, we'll be in more of a buyer's market, meaning sellers, as it's starting to go down, will start getting a little bit desperate to sell their house uh, quickly because they're afraid of losing more and more and more value. And so it gets a little easier to buy houses. But as house prices are going down, now my buyers, which are house flippers and landlords, they get a little bit nervous because they don't want to buy a house at, let's say, $100,000 today thinking it's going to be worth 150 when they renovate it. But as house prices are going down, they have to consider that declining value and say, oh, if I buy it for 100 now, because I think it's worth 150 fixed up, what happens in three or four or five or six months when I'm done, if it's only worth 120 and I put 25 into it, right? Like, so they are worried that house prices are going to decline faster than they can get them renovated and sold, which means they're more hesitant to buy, their offers become lower. And so <clears throat> the, the, the selling side as a wholesaler, like selling to buyers, becomes a little bit more challenging. So when the cycles change, right, recession or not a recession, we're talking in real estate about sellers and buyers market and then the transition periods in between. So as we're transitioning from that seller's market to a buyer's market, it gets a little more challenging to sell these properties or assign them to our end buyer because they're just they're a little nervous, just like homeowners are nervous. And that's why it's a little easier to buy from the homeowner in a buyer's market because, um, you know, they're afraid of declining value too. And they try to oftentimes sell them quickly and, and get out from underneath them and they're afraid. And, you know, a lot of the, the media drives a lot of this too. And so the media, you know, what I have found typically when it comes to real estate, what, as, a, as an investor, by the way, Whatever the media says, you can almost guarantee the opposite is true for an investor. And this gets people kind of tripped up too, like friends and family who don't really understand exactly what I do as a wholesaler. They, they think right now, they'll go, wow, the market's really, really great. You must be killing it. And it's like, yeah, kind of. I'm not a realtor though. So it's not, I don't have the same situation a realtor has where everyone wants to sell their house because house prices are really high and that's all great. For an investor, it's more challenging for me to buy houses right now. And so the answer is always yes and no when people ask me if the market's good. I mean, the market's, like I said before, the market isn't good or bad, but as it relates to me, is the market making it harder or easier for me? The answer is always twofold. It's always harder and easier. It's either harder on the, on the, on the purchase side for me and easier on the sell side or the other way around it's harder on the, or easier on the purchase side and harder on the sell side. Or I don't know if I just said the same thing twice, but you get what I'm saying. It's, it's going to be easy on one end and hard on the other, almost always. Sometimes when you're in a transitioning market, you know, it becomes, it kind of balances out a little bit where it's just as easy to buy and sell because we're sort of in between. But when you're in that buyer's market or seller's market, one side of my business is always easier and harder. And it just depends on which market we're in, which is which. And, you know, do I change my process when, when the market changes? Absolutely. You have to change, not necessarily your process, but you have to change the conversations that you're having with buyers and sellers. So when we go into a buyer's home now, we can't say to them, hey, 
you know, your value is dropping. And, you know, in six months from now, the value of your house could be significantly less than it is now. Nobody thinks that right now, at least not in the public. They don't think that, right? We as investors might say, hey, it's cooling off or, you know, prices are leveling out. That may be true. But right now, I don't think that the population at large, the, you know, the entire population believes that house prices are declining because the, the media is not saying it really yet. So, it's hard to go into a home and say, hey, we want to buy your house. We can pay you X. We think that's a good price. In three months from now, it may be a lot less. We can't say that because that's not what that's not what's being told to everyone, right? So no one would believe that. But in six months or a year, if a recession does hit and we do see declining house prices, then, then the conversation changes to, hey, Mr. Homeowner, <clears throat> I know you're a little hesitant to take my offer. It's a little lower than you thought. I get that. But if you decide not to sell to me, that's totally fine. It's it's your decision and I, I respect that. And you should always, you know, do what's best for you and your family. However, I'm just telling you that in three months or in six months, if you call me back and you want me to buy the house, I may not be able to offer you this price because house prices are declining, right? That's the conversation you have in a declining or a market that's sort of bottoming out. That's the conversation you have. You can't have that conversation now. And so yeah, we change. We don't change our process because our core process is essentially the same. But some of the the strategies and some of the conversations that we're having with sellers is going to change dramatically. Same thing on the buyer side. Right now, buyers are calling my company saying, "Do you have properties for me? I want to look at anything. Like I'm desperate. I need properties. Show me what you got. Like please send me anything you have. I will. I'll buy it. I, I need it. Right. That's the conversations we're having with buyers." But when things are going the other way, we might have to do more outreach and say, hey, Mr. Buyer or wholesaler, I mean, sorry, Mr. Flipper or landlord, you know, hey, we've got properties. I don't know if you saw them. And they might say, oh, yeah, we saw them, but we're kind of overloaded. We have too much right now. Like that's what happens when the market reverses. You know, we get the opposite of what we have right now. Right now, I have desperate buyers. When the market flips, we might have buyers that just have too many deals on their hands and they can't they can't finance them all or they can't they don't have enough you know crews to run renovations or whatever it is so it becomes a little bit more challenging to sell properties that are under contract than it is right now so the process doesn't change but your your talking points or your conversations or the way that you approach buyers and sellers changes with the market <clears throat> but don't be afraid like whether we're in a seller's market or a buyer's market, it doesn't matter. Now's the time to get in, right? And I'll say that in five years, I'll say it in five months, I said it five years ago, and I'll say it now. Now's the time to get in, right? There's never a better time than right now. You just have to understand where you are in the market cycle so that you can make appropriate decisions and have the appropriate conversations with buyers and sellers. Okay, <clears throat> let's go to the next question. I'm gonna take a drink here. I'm clearing my throat, obviously. Okay, <clears throat> next question. I finally have some cash to buy my first out-of-state short-term rental, but I have a bad case of analysis paralysis. How can I push through it to get started? <clears throat> okay, this this is pretty common. I, I went through this too. I had analysis paralysis. A lot of people go through it. It's fear, right? We call it analysis paralysis, and it sounds maybe a little bit less... Um, you know, of a bummer to call it analysis paralysis because analysis is a good thing. Paralysis is not, but at least we're paralyzed by doing analysis, right? Analysis sounds very responsible. What this is, is you're paralyzed by fear. So it should be called 
fear paralysis, because that's really what it is. If you know your numbers, okay, you're analyzing these short-term rentals and you're looking at, you know, um, vacancies and, you know, the cost per night that you can charge and the seasonality, if there is a, a significant seasonality to the, to the property that you're looking at. Like once you look at all the factors and you compare it to all the other short-term rentals in the area that are similar to yours, what are they charging? How, how often are they, are they booked? Like you look at all these factors, if the, just trust your numbers. If the numbers make sense, then you move forward, right? Paralysis analysis implies that you're looking at the numbers and they're clearly telling you that you should do it. And you're just saying in your own mind, yeah, but, yeah, but what if I'm wrong? What if the numbers are wrong? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if we have a recession, right? What if, what if you know, consumer opinions about short-term rentals change? What if um, laws or regulations in this area change? Like, I, I understand what you're being paralyzed by, but if the numbers make sense and you've done your due diligence, trust your numbers and move forward. Some people have the opposite of paralysis analysis. They don't seem to understand that it's a bad deal when the numbers are telling it's a bad deal. They talk themselves into it because they want to do it so bad. That's the other end of the spectrum. And that's bad too, because you end up with bad deals. But if you have analysis paralysis and you can see, you run your numbers and you can see that it's a good deal, the returns are good, the vacancies are good, the cost per night makes sense, all this stuff. If it looks like a good deal, <clears throat> you have to pull the trigger, right? Nothing is ever accomplished by waiting. Nothing gets done by waiting. Empires were not built by, you know, people who sat around and waited for the optimal situation that never comes. <clears throat> there will always be a reason to not move forward, to not do something, to not start your business, to not buy that short-term rental. There will always be a reason. I know people who it seems like their entire life is defined by having something they want to do, creating an arbitrary time in the future when they're going to actually start doing it. One that once that time gets closer, they move the line. They just keep moving the line. And you probably know people who have done this. You know, I'm going to start working out. Let's just say right now, we're as we sit here and as this is being recorded, uh, it is July of 2022. And you know people who will say, well, I'm going to wait until um, after school starts, right? Right now, kids are on vacation. We're kind of going places and I can't eat well and I'm not going to be at home to work out. And so I'll start in September when school starts. And then September starts. It's like, ah, kids are back to school. It's really hectic. I'm, I've got all these different like sports practices I'm taking my kids to and you know, whatever. And then, then it's like, okay, I'll wait till all that comes down. And then it's like, well, East, I'm sorry, Thanksgiving's coming up and I'm going to eat terrible Thanksgiving. So I'll wait till after Thanksgiving and after Thanksgiving, it's Christmas and new year. And then it's um, Easter. And then, you know, the summer's coming and then summer we're too busy. Right. And it's like, they have this perpetual line in the sand that they just keep moving and making excuses and they never do it. People do the same thing with business and you could be doing the same thing here with the short-term rentals. You're causing, you're putting up walls and you're overanalyzing to try to keep yourself safe. It's like, it's sort of like, uh, you know, your body's natural tendency to, to want to protect itself. It's self-preservation. You're, you're creating this over analyzing, you know, kind of a thing in your head, because if you 
don't pull the trigger and buy that short-term rental, you can't make a mistake and you can't you know, lose money or, or feel stupid or whatever it is that you're worried about. It can't happen if you don't pull the trigger. But the other thing that can't happen if you don't pull the trigger is you can't reach your goals. You can't create that, that supplementary income or the income that you're trying to create to get you out of your nine to five. You can't do any of that if you don't pull the trigger. So here's what I say to answer your question, right? You have the money, you're doing your analysis. If the numbers, you just have to create like whatever analysis you're doing, create a benchmark. If it hits this or better, I will do it. And if you find a property that hits all those benchmarks, you have to do it. You know, at some point you just have to pull the trigger. At some point you have to take that that leap of faith and it's not even it's not even really a leap of faith. A leap of faith implies you just don't know what's going to happen, right? In this case, you're doing analysis, right? Real estate, the great thing about real estate is there are lots of data that will help us determine like statistically, mathematically, factually whether or not what we're about to do makes sense and will be successful. It's not just closing your eyes and jumping and hoping for the best. You have data to back you up. Trust your data. Once you have a property that 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 meets your minimum criteria, then do it. That's my that's my advice, you know, like Nike says, just do it. Or like I say on my podcast, just start. Like do it. Buy it if it meets your criteria, buy it. Quit overanalyzing. Um, don't over engineer this thing. Like if it meets your criteria, do it and move on to the next one. Okay. Next question. <clears throat> okay. This is a different one. So bear with me. I had to read this a couple of times. Okay. The question says, answer this. If I could walk away with X years of my current annual cash flow, it would be worth it for me to sell my portfolio now. This is <laughs> this is an interesting question and it's highly personal and highly like depends on you kind of a thing. There's no way I can really answer this, um, you know, with just like, hey, this is it, right? Because if I say, and I, I get the question, right? If you sell your portfolio and let's just say, we'll put numbers into this. Let's just say your por portfolio nets you $10,000 a year. What the question is, how how many years of profit would I have to be able to get if I sold my portfolio now to make it worth it? In other words, if I make $10,000 a year on my portfolio net, and I could sell it for $50,000, my, whole, my whole, whole portfolio and net $50,000, that would be five years worth of cash flow would, how many, how many, is that worth it? Like is five years enough? Would I have to sell it for uh, a net $100,000 profit, which would be 10 years of cash flow? Like, I don't know. It's hard to say, right? It's hard. It depends. What are you going to do with the money when you sell it? If you're going to do, if you're going to reinvest that money and you sell it into something more profitable, then I say it doesn't, you could do it for one year's worth of net cash flow or no year's worth just get out from under it and get your money back in other words if you're making 8% on your portfolio right now you've got whatever money you got into it and that money uh, gives you an 8% return annually if i could sell that portfolio and put the money that i had invested in the portfolio 
into something that netted me 10% or 12%, I would do it without any net profit above and beyond what I have into it because I know day one, I'm making more money on it, right? So why wouldn't I do that? But if you're saying you're cashing out and you're just going to hold on to that money and live on it, again, how old are you? Are you 80? Then I don't know, maybe do it if you could just make two or three times your annual cash flow or five times your annual cash flow, like then it would be worth it. Are you 25 and you're not going to reinvest the money? Then you know you better make 20, 30, 50 times your annual, you know what I'm saying? So there's a there's a hundred ways you could slice this, but if you're going to take that money and cash out of your portfolio and you're going to reinvest it in something that makes you as much or hopefully more return on that money, then it, it doesn't matter. Get it out and reinvest it into something more profitable. If you're just going to live on it and coast, then it's totally up to you. I, I don't know. You know, the other thing is, do you make a million dollars annual cash flow? Well, maybe you don't have to make that many times your annual cash flow for it to make sense. You know, maybe you only have to make two or three times your annual ca annual cash flow for it to make some sense to you. <clears throat> so it's it's kind of an impossible question to ask or answer for me, unfortunately. Uh, certainly, without knowing more about what are you going to do with the money and how old are you? <laughs> Those are key questions. Like, I need to know how how long this money has to last you, or if you're like, hey, I'm going to take it out of this portfolio, I'm going to cash out of it. I make 8% annually on my portfolio, but I'm going to put it into this investment and make 15%. Like, you don't have to make any, any number of times the cash flow and profit to get it out. I say get it out now because you're, you're way upping your returns by going with the new investment. So tough question. That's a tough one. I've never been asked that before. <clears throat> but I this is where live questions would make sense. Because I, if you were live asking me this question, I would probably have three, we would bounce back and forth three or four times that I would ask you things in order to get to the bottom of the best answer. But I say it really depends on how old you are and what you're going to do with that money when it comes out. All right, let's try one more. One more question. Last question. I hate to generalize, but I'm really struggling to manage my millennial-aged team members. <laughs> they complain about everything and aren't willing to put the time in. Thoughts? Okay, so you're managing millennial-aged people and uh, and you're struggling. You say you hate to generalize, but you are generalizing, but that's fine. It's okay. Well, I'll answer the question. It's, it's, it's not an unfair question, and it's not something I've never heard. I've answered this question in a different way before, but here's my, my general take on this. Every generation has slightly different values, um, slightly different motivating factors in the workplace, um, different attitudes, different values in, in the way that they just kind of like conduct their life. So millennials are no, no different, right? I'm not a millennial. Um, I'm a Gen Xer, basically. So millennials are different. They're, they 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 probably require, no, not probably, they do. I don't want to be like a weak answer here because it's true. They do require a different kind of management. But my my like 10,000 foot view or my my overarching response to this kind of a question is if you have a group of employees whether they're from the same generation or not if you have a group of employees who are not responding to your management then that's on you you have to alter 
your management methods, your management style, your communication method, your communication style to find out what's effective for them. Now, one employee who happens to be a millennial who has, you know, uh, complaints about everything and aren't willing to put time in, that could be a one that could be a one person thing. You have one bad apple that you have to deal with. And and that can happen and that is not necessarily on you. That could just be them, right? And maybe maybe you could, you know, change your methods and and kind of appeal to that person a little more effectively, but at the end of the day, if I have one person in my entire team and they're just they're always complaining and they never work, like we might just have to get rid of that person. They're just not a good fit. But if you have a group or more than one person who all of them complain and none of them want to work, you have a workplace problem that is your problem as the manager. And I, I hate to say that, but that's just the reality of it. Um, uh, there's a book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink that I would highly encourage that you read. Uh, and it is exactly what the title suggests. It's It's extreme ownership, meaning you as the manager, you as the person who's leading the team, you have to take ownership of everything that's going on, specifically the things that aren't going well. So it, it sort of goes back to that old cliche, you know, is everybody wrong or are you wrong? And my guess is that you manage people who are not millennials and you're not having these problems with them, okay? So to be fair to you, my guess is you have a successful management style and communication style that works with maybe with older uh, team members or people who are not millennials, it works with them. And so you're looking at the millennials saying, what's wrong with you guys? And it's not necessarily what's wrong with them. Certainly if it's like more than one, you know, if we're talking two, three, four, five, ten 10 people, like it's not them, it's you. And you have to learn how to manage different people different groups, certainly, sometimes a little bit differently. It doesn't have to be unfair. It doesn't have to be like, oh, you just give them a bunch of stuff that you don't give other people. But you'll find that different age groups, and like I said, millennials have their own you know, set of values and things that, they've, that they think are important uh, that motivate them and find out what motivates them and work toward that a little bit better. So I have managed millennials and I'm not going to lie. I've been frustrated at times too. I have watched that. Um, I don't know. I can't remember what it's called, but Simon Sinek did a, did a talk or part of his talk one time on millennials and managing millennials. I would highly suggest you go and search that out. Simon, just type in Simon Sinek millennials and you'll find it. It's very popular, really, really well done talk about uh, how to how to work and motivate and just interact with millennials in the workplace. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay. Until next time.